0: So we're in Exodus chapter 3, and uh, we have been kind of working our way through the book of Exodus. We're kind of seeing the story of Moses, how it's developing, how the Lord is using him. And before I go any further, I need you to dismiss our kids so y'all can meet at the back of the, the room here. And we'll dismiss you on up to children's ministry. So, we've been working our way through the book of Exodus. And, uh, you know, as we have been engaging, we've been seeing this story of Moses. Moses is about to hit something impossible that he is going to be called to do. And uh, as we talk about this idea of running into impossible things, I, I want to bring up uh, some important people who I have been watching all the time. So, uh, look at this picture, check this picture out. I, I watch these folks all the time. These are the Shark Tank executives. And, uh, and uh, I really appreciate these folks. I love watching Shark Tank because what you have is you have these people who have these marvelous ideas about the kinds of things that they can accomplish in the world. Um, they come up with all of these uh, different business ideas. But, uh, but many of these folks who have these business ideas, these entrepreneurs, they, they run into roadblocks in their life and uh, and they can't get past these roadblocks they don't have the resources to get past these roadblocks and so uh, they go on the show shark tank and, and come before these executives and say I need you to invest in a part of my company if you give your money to my company and it's not giving like let's be real they own a piece of the company and providing some sort of financial resource but the idea is they go to these executives and say hey you will be able to help me get past this roadblock, this thing that seems uh, inconquerable to me. I'm going to be able to get past now because you've helped me out, and so so that's that that's the idea with uh, with Shark Tank. So uh, so anyway, we can go back to the the, uh, the title slide there. But um, I so so I have a sort of similar situation. I when I was uh, being trained to be a pastor, I was a part of a church. Um, I had no formal Training like at a school or anything like that. I was just uh, I was just learning what it looked like to be a pastor I did an internship and, and there were some people who said okay Well, maybe you should consider preaching and you know, okay So in order to consider preaching there were like five or six people who said, you know The thing that you should probably do is go to seminary go get some kind of formal training And I said, okay, you know, that's cool. Like that sounds good You know how much seminary costs? about $65,000 for, for an entire education. At the the place that it was like everybody was telling me to go, that's how much it costs for a, for a seminary degree. And so, uh, so I was like, you know, okay, cool, so yeah, seminary, but I'm not uh, taking on $65,000 worth of debt. I'm not going to go and do this. So there's this, like, roadblock in front of me, and all of these people are saying, you know, you should really do this. And I say, okay, yeah, that's great, but it's just, it's probably not for me. I'm going to have to take some other pathway. So I tell you that. Hold on to that story. Keep it in your head. We're going to come back to it at the end of our morning. Uh, but, uh, so Exodus chapter 3. You know, we've been watching, uh, watching God's people in the middle of some dark realities. They're being oppressed by Pharaoh, by the, the people of Egypt. Egypt has become a really dark place. Egypt is committing genocide against the Hebrew people. It's a really hard, difficult reality. And, and, but what these people know is that God had given them a promise. God had promised that they would be a, a great nation, that they would uh, have kids, and that they would have a land to call their own. But the problem is they're not seeing that promise come to fruition. They feel forgotten in the midst of this land that they're in. And so then our attention gets drawn to this character called Moses. And, you know, Moses, he was really well positioned in the house of Pharaoh, in the place of Egypt. He had a lot of influence. But he got really impulsive one day and killed an Egyptian. And then in killing an Egyptian, he kind of blew every chance that he had to deliver the Israelites. So he gets driven out into the wilderness, into this place called Midian. And he doesn't have an identity because he used to be an Egyptian. He was trained as an Egyptian. He learned all of the Egyptian things that you're supposed to do, what it means to be a member of the ruling class in Egypt. And so he had that identity. And then he also had his Hebrew identity, like this people that he was a part of, his bloodline. And both of these things are really, really strong Uh, factors for Moses. In fact, in Moses's world, identity is how you get things done. Like you walk up to a person and say, Hey, this is my lineage. This is my title. This is the family that I'm a part of. And because of this, this is now the influence that I have over you. So, but now Moses, when he blows his opportunity, he loses both of his identities He gets driven out into the wilderness, and he is now broken off with both of his Egyptian identity and his Hebrew identity. And the way that becomes evident to us is that he has a son. He names that son Gershom. Gershom is not a Hebrew name. It is not an Egyptian name. It's just a name of the Arabian area that he is a part of. And so Moses has pretty much given up. He says, you know, I don't have an identity anymore. I'm just going to become a Midianite. I'm going to live out here. I'm going to flee. I'm going to stay away from Egypt. And that's kind of where our story picks up. So we come on Moses. And and Moses, this is some 40 years later, after Moses has fled Egypt. He's like in his late 70s, early 80s at this point. And and so verse 1 of chapter 3 says this. It says, now Moses was keeping the flock of his father-in-law Jethro. If he's keeping the flock, what that means is he is totally stepped out of both of his, his Egyptian identity and his Hebrew identity and totally taken on his Midianite identity. Because if you're going to be a shepherd for somebody, it means you're going to be like, the, you're going to do the dirtiest of the dirty jobs that exist for a place, which means you're fully invested in that place. He's fully invested in his Midianite identity with his father-in-law, Jethro. And Jethro is a priest of Midian. He led his flock to the west side of the wilderness and came To Horeb, the mountain of God. Hebrew readers reading this, when they see the mountain of God, when they see Mount Horeb, it triggers something in their mind. It says, This is the place where God gave the law. This is Mount Sinai. This is the place where the tablets were delivered. This is a really important place. Now, up to this point in the book of Exodus, we don't really see God do anything. One time, it says God, uh, God dealt well with them when it was talking about the Hebrew midwives, but, but we don't see God meet anybody, we don't see God interact with anybody, we don't see God talk to anybody, but God, God shows up. God shows up here, and this is what we know, because it says at the mountain of God, we know God's going to show up, and this is what the Hebrew reader would see. So verse 2 says this, the angel of the Lord... Moses is out um, in in this place on the edge of the wilderness. He's a long way from home. In verse 2, the angel of the Lord appeared to him in a flame of fire out of the midst of a bush. What we're about to see is we're about to see God have an interaction with Moses. This is what we might call a theophany in the Old Testament, an appearance of God in space and time. And and I want you to understand who the angel of the Lord is. The angel of the Lord is the pre-incarnate Christ. Angel of the Lord is the pre-incarnate Christ. Whenever we see the, now the is very important, the angel of the Lord is pre-incarnate Jesus. Pre-incarnate Jesus means we, we recognize Jesus came down, he became flesh, took on flesh. That's what incarnate means. So pre-incarnate Jesus means before, before the time that Jesus came, before his arrival. And so we believe one Father or one, one God, three persons, Father, Son, Holy Spirit... When it says the angel of the Lord, we're recognizing the second person of the Trinity because what what the Bible tells us about Jesus is that he is the image of the invisible God. And so when he's appearing here in space, in time, in a particular place, we're led to see this as the pre-incarnate Christ. So we're seeing God working and revealing himself and the Old Testament through this person. Now, why is that important? Why would I even spend any time talking to you about that? The reason this is important is this. Sometimes people will talk about the God of the Old Testament and the God of the New Testament as if they're kind of different people. Um, and what we see in Scripture is that God is the same yesterday and today and forever. So the same God that worked in the Old Testament is the same God that worked in the New Testament and is the same God that's working Today, so the Son of God who took on flesh, who took on flesh so that he might go to the cross and die for our sins, is the person who's talking to Moses from the bush in this moment. And so he's there with Moses. And so the angel of the Lord appeared to him in a flame of fire out of the midst of the bush. He looked. So Moses looked, and behold, the bush was burning, yet it was not consumed So this is crazy. He's like, he sees the bush burning. Okay, like, big deal. A bush is on fire. That's kind of weird, but only a little weird. And then he watches it for a little bit, and the thing is not burning up. It's not running out of flame. It continues to keep going, and so he's intrigued. He recognizes that something miraculous is taking place. So uh, verse 3, Moses said, I will turn aside and see this great sight. Why the bush is not burned? And so when the Lord saw that he turned aside to see, when the Lord caught his attention, God called to him out of the bush and said, Moses, Moses. And he said, here I am. (laughs) Like, okay, so, hot tip. If, uh, if you, you got it, good job, good job. I got a guy listening up here, that's great. Um, if, if you hear a voice coming out of fire, uh, it's probably a good idea to pay attention, like just for what it's worth. And so Moses says, okay, I'm I'm, I'm paying attention. I'm with you. And I can imagine Moses even starts to walk over, and then suddenly you get this interaction, verse 5. Then he said, the bush said, do not come near. Take your sandals off your feet, for the place on which you are standing is holy ground. And he said, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob. And Moses hid his face he was afraid to look at God. So this is what God says. God speaks out from the bush. The angel of the Lord speaks and says, stay back. So what's happening in this moment is that God is establishing his identity with Moses. And what he's trying to do is he's trying to communicate his otherness to Moses. Moses. God is somehow completely different from anything that Moses has seen up to this point. In fact, he says, Moses, I need you to take your sandals off. When he tells him to take his sandals off, uh, you take your... So taking your shoes off, it was not a really common thing to do. The place that you would typically do it is when you walk into the house of a noble or somebody who is of really high esteem. And so when you take your shoes off, when you go into that person's house or into their palace, what you're recognizing is that this person has far greater authority over me i want to honor them by taking my shoes off and so when god says to moses take your shoes off moses what he's saying is i am establishing a place right here that will be my place this will be my house in fact we're going to see moses when he brings the israelites out of egypt he's going to come back to this place to hear from god and to receive the law so he's establishing his place with moses but he's also saying listen You need to recognize my place. I need you to take your shoes off. I need you to recognize who I am. He needs to make sure that Moses knows. And then he says, the God of your father. How many fathers does Moses have? He has three. Moses has three fathers. He has his Hebrew father when he was born, right? But then he went into the house of Pharaoh. So then, uh, so then he has Pharaoh as his dad, and along with Pharaoh comes all of the Egyptian gods. And then now he has a third father. He's out in the wilderness in Midian with his father-in-law Jethro, who is a priest of Midian. Which means all three of Moses' fathers represent a different set of gods. So when he says, your father, he's drawing his attention not to the father that he grew up with, with Pharaoh. He's not drawing his attention to the father that he now serves, the priest of Midian, Jethro. He's drawing his attention to his blood father. And we see that clarified when he says the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And what's interesting is this. Moses doesn't get afraid when the bush with fire that doesn't consume the bush talks to him. He kind of says, here I am. But when God identifies himself, when God says, this is the God who I am, when God says, I'm the God who created everything, Moses, I'm the God who judged humanity in the flood, Moses, I'm the God who wrestled with Jacob out in the wilderness, I'm the God who gave Joseph the ability to interpret dreams, I'm the God who it was acting in all of these stories that you heard very early on in your life, I'm the God who gave the promise The promise that my people would not stay in this place, but that I would eventually draw them out. When he says that, that's when Moses starts to get afraid. So you know what, Moses, unlike the Midianite gods, you know, your father-in-law is a priest of Midian. So unlike those gods who maybe have their own specific domains of influence, I'm the God who has power over every domain of influence. Unlike the Egyptian gods who kind of play games with each other and get into petty quarrels with each other, I'm the God who, uh, I keep my promises. I stay faithful. Unlike the false gods who demand child sacrifice, I'm the God who provided a sacrifice when Abraham was over there on the mountain ready to sacrifice his child Isaac to me. I provided a sacrifice for him. So I am unlike any of the gods that you worship. So, So you know what, we may not worship, we may not even, like the idea of polytheism in our culture today It's just not present with us. So we may not worship those gods, but I promise you, our hearts are still prone to engage in false worship. So, you know, like, maybe it's fleeting wealth that you chase. So you know what, unlike the fleeting wealth that you are prone to chase, I'm the God who directs all the resources of the universe. Unlike the health and security that you seem so intent on pursuing, uh, I'm the God who is in charge of the coronavirus, right? (laughs) I'm the God who, who numbers each person's days according to my will. Unlike fame and prestige and importance, which just happens to move with the winds of culture, I'm the God whose fame is written onto the very fabric of creation. So in God, he comes and identifies himself. This is what he says. He says, I am like nothing else that you've been taught to worship. I'm like nothing else that you've been taught to worship. And he sets himself utterly apart from every other thing. So then God reveals more of his character. We're going to see in a minute why the idea that we would even serve God exists. The the idea that God would even call people to do things for him exists. Verse 7. The Lord said, I have surely seen the affliction of my people. They are in Egypt, and, and I've heard their cry because of their taskmasters. I know their sufferings, and I have come down to deliver them. God calls people to serve him and engage in service in this world because he sees the affliction that exists, because he has a heart of compassion for people. So many of his actions in the world, so many of the things that God does in our world, whether it's calling people to ministry, whether it's giving gifts of service, whether it's uh, working miracles, where it's simply just showing up in a situation, all of it flows out of his heart of compassion for us, for people who are stuck in the midst of bondage and in the midst of captivity. And so God reveals his heart here in this, Moses. This is what he says. I am here to free captives. I'm the God who saves. That's who I am, Moses. So not just am I the, the God over all creation who has power over all creation, but Moses, I want to let you know that I have a specific heart to set captives free. That is what I am working towards. I am for your people who are stuck building the empires of some false king, but I'm going to draw them out. And the implication is this, hey, you know, anybody who serves God, anybody who works on his behalf, we are not called to build empires, but we are called to engage people for the sake of God's compassionate heart. That's the thing that we're called to. So verse 8 goes on and says this, He says, I've come down to deliver them out of the hand of the Egyptians and to bring them up out of that land to a good and broad land, a land flowing with milk and honey to the place of the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites. So God comes, and he makes it clear to Moses... You may and your people may have thought that I had forgotten about you, but I want to clarify for you right now, I am keeping my promise. I have not forgotten about you. I do intend to make this right. I'm going to hold true to my word. This is what he says. And so verse 9, And now behold, the cry of the people of Israel has come to me, and I have also seen the oppression with which the Egyptians oppressed them. So what's going on is that It's like God is acknowledging the time of their pain is filling up. The time of their desperation is filling up. Their desperation, the the, the children of Israel as they're in the midst of this land, they've been crying out to God more and more and more as things have intensified and God sees their desperation in the middle of the situation and he he starts to have a more and more compassionate heart for them and it's like the time, the time keeps filling up. There's like a limit on the time and the desperation intensifies and it closes the time a little bit more and so he sees it and so here's what God is Saying to Moses, he's saying, You know what? This dark kingdom will not continue to have power over my people. They will not be held captive to Pharaoh any longer. I will show them in the midst of their desperation just how good I am. In fact, you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to put Pharaoh to open shame. The Pharaoh who has oppressed these people, the Pharaoh who keeps them in captivity, I am going to make a mockery of him. And I'm going to reveal my heart to my people. And they will know that I love them. That's what he intends to do. So I want you to see, because this is important. uh, We have Old Testament and we have New Testament. Exodus is to the Old Testament what the cross is to the New Testament. So when we see, like God is foretelling... In creation, in the midst of Israel's history, what he intends to do for all people in the New Testament. He intends to set captives free with the blood of Jesus. So Exodus was for one people at one point in time. And we even see that when it was for that one people that God intended those one people to be working on behalf of all people. But Exodus was for one people, Israel, at one point in time. But then the cross is for all people at all time. Crosses for all people for all of eternity. And so we see God is offering this invitation in Exodus, but it's a a, a similar invitation in the New Testament. And so as we we read Exodus, we read it with Christian eyes. We read that God was foreshadowing what he was going to do through Jesus. So by Jesus's cross, you know what he would do? He would draw people out of the kingdom of darkness, He would break the chains of sin that exist. He would come to people who are desperate over the brokenness of themselves and the brokenness of this world, and He would show those people just how good He is. He would put spiritually dark forces to open shame, triumphing over them by His blood in the cross, and then He would reveal to us, the people who receive this amazing truth, just how much He loves us. So you know what, Alliance Bible Church, your God is the God who frees captives. That's who he is. And, and he's not just, he doesn't just like have a heart for freeing captives, but he is powerful to free captives. He is bow, powerful to break the, the most powerful thing that stands against us, death, by, by raising from the dead. By proving to us that he actually does have the power to forgive sins and conquer death. So your God is the God who frees captives. So now we'll see what that means for Moses as he's in the midst of this. Verse 10. God says to Moses, come, I'll send you to Pharaoh that you may bring my people, the children of Israel, out of Egypt. So this is what he says to Moses. Remember, Moses like dropped the ball 100%. Failed utterly. Completely disregarded God and everything that he had. And so this is what God says to Moses. He says, come, Moses, Face your greatest fear, your greatest regret, your greatest failure, your greatest sadness. Face the family that you left behind. Face your former identity, your greatest secret. Moses, what I want you to do is I want you to dig into your pain and face it. You see, what God is calling Moses to do here, he's calling him to confront the very thing that he regrets in his life. And so so what do you think Moses is going to say? Like, what's his response? Like, if I were Moses, I would say, you know what? I'm good out here. Like, I'm okay. Prefer, I prefer, you know, I can do other things out here in Midian. I can be a good shepherd for these, these flocks. Like, I, I'll take care of these things. I kind of blew it back there. I don't know if you were watching, but I murdered a guy, and then everybody knows about it now. And so it's probably a problem. I'm not going to be able to go back and leave them. God, you can leave me out here. I'm fine. I'm good. But God's trying to, to show Moses that this isn't really about him in the first place. Right? So, so I want to just give you an idea that, that's going to be a thread that we're going to watch throughout Moses' story. But that idea is this. Your past pain very well may be your future ministry. You know, the thing that God might call you to, to make an impact for his kingdom, to give people hope of being drawn out of darkness, that very thing may require you to confront the pain, some some sort of past pain that you have been facing, some sort of challenging difficulty, whatever it might be, something really difficult about your past. So if you you struggle with addiction, you know, and God brought you out of that, God may be calling you to to help other addicts. Or if you had somebody in your family who struggled with addiction, maybe you're called to help people who have family members who struggle with addiction. And that, that might even be painful for you to confront those things. But you know what? You have experience through the midst of that that other people don't have. And for what it's worth, God likes to use places where we are weak to prove to us that he is powerful. And so your past pain may very well be your future ministry. Verse 11, but Moses said to God, who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and bring the children of Israel out of Egypt? So, so Moses goes, okay, God, like you, you know, You know what I did. You know how I had to escape from the land. You know how Pharaoh chased me. You know how the Hebrew people said to me, who do you think you are that you would lead us? And so God, I ask you the question that he asked me, who am I that I would be the one who delivers your people? And this this response of Moses actually marks the beginning of a long argument between God and Moses. And eventually God just says, okay, dude, just go do it. Like, just stop arguing with me. But here, we see just the beginning of this argument. He says, you know what? I blew it. I wasn't the guy that God needed me to be. I was impulsive. I have control issues. I'm a murderer. They're not going to follow me. Don't you understand that? So who am I that I could bear this responsibility that you have given me? Notice, God doesn't answer his question." In fact, in what God says, God doesn't even respond to what he says. He gives a completely alternate answer. So verse 12. He said, but. So so but, when you see the the word but in the Hebrew language, in this case in particular, he's not contrasting what Moses has said. He's literally like stopping Moses' thought. He's saying, we're going to throw that thought away and start a new thought. But. I will be with you. And this shall be the sign for you that I have sent you. When you have brought the people out of Egypt, you shall serve God on this mountain. So it's as if God is saying, you know what, Moses? You asked the question, who am I? It doesn't really matter who you are. What matters is that I am going with you. That's the important piece. So you know what? You you could have been the best. You could have not failed at all. You could have shown all of your strength and all of your power in this situation, and you know what? You still wouldn't be able to do this without me. So you know what, Moses? It doesn't really matter who you are. What matters is that I go with you. So let's process this question then. Can God really use me? You know, you may think that because you didn't, have any Bible training or go to seminary that, like, I'm not really going to make an impact for God. God can't use me until I do something like that. You know, I'm, I'm useless to effectively reach the captives if I, if I don't have that. Or you may think that because, you know, in the past, I can count uh, five or six or seven missed opportunities where I knew God was giving me something to do and I just kind of blew it. I didn't follow through. I didn't listen to God in those moments. And because of that, I just, I don't think that God can really use me to effectively reach captives. You know, you may think that because You know, I'm not really a take-charge leader. Uh, And because I'm not really a take-charge leader, I doubt God's ability to use me to effectively reach people. You may think that because of your past abuse, whatever it might be, uh, that the trauma that that caused has has created such a situation where you're not going to be able to confront the things that God wants you to confront. And so because of that, God can't use me because of my social anxiety in different situations. You may be prone to think, yeah, I'm going to have a hard time reaching people because I just get so anxious about the things that I say and how they respond to me. You may be prone to think that God can't use you. You might think it's because of your physical state that God can't use you or or because of your age that God can't use you. You might think that you don't have the right skill set. You might think that you have the wrong personal background. You know what? And those all might be good reasons why you can't accomplish effective things, and many of those might be very logical, but the question is not who am I, the question is who is he? Because he's the one that goes with you. It's not about you, and it's not about what you lack in fact. It's probably better that you lack certain resources just so he can show how powerful he is. So you know what? Because of who he is, God can use me. Because of who he is, God can use me. So don't don't start with me. What do I lack? What, What do I not have? Because the reality is God gives the promise. Anybody who chooses to engage the mission that he's calling us to, he says, I go with you. Okay, so what? So what this morning? You know what? Wouldn't it be mind-blowing? Wouldn't it be mind-blowing if, like, God talked to people in the New Testament like he talked to Moses in this moment? Like, wouldn't that just be the craziest thing? Oh, wait. He does. He says, like, he has almost the exact same conversation with his disciples. In the Great Commission, Matthew 28, 18 to 20, Jesus said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Let me identify myself for you. I have authority over everything. I'm the one who rules all of it. And so this is what you're going to do. You're going to go. I'm sending you to free captives, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And I can imagine the disciples at this point are like, don't you know who we are? You walked with us for three years. We're like the dumbest group of people you could ever imagine spending your time with. They have all of these excuses inside of them, and Jesus anticipating all of these excuses for why you can't use me. And by the way, this was not just a call to the disciples. This was a call to every single person who would come after the disciples, every single person who would follow Jesus. He's telling all of us to go. But don't you know who we are? And behold, I am with you always to the end of the year. I am with you always to the end of the age. The promise that he gives to us is not what, like, yeah, I, you, you can do it. You, you've got the resources, and you don't worry about that stuff that, stuff that keeps you down. No, he, that's not the promise that he gives us. He says, oh, just believe in yourself. No, that's not it at all. He says, I am with you. So the reason that you go and do it, whatever the thing is that he's calling you to do, the reason that you go and do it is not, not because you think you can muster up some kind of strength in you. You just go and do it because he said he would go with you, and he shows up in the situations where you go and do the things that he's calling you to do. So so a uh, question. Moses was given a message as God's ambassador to Pharaoh. Uh, He goes and he repeats that message over and over and over again. So what was the message that, uh, that Moses had to give to Pharaoh? What was the message? Let my people go. Let my people go. That's exactly right. God gave Moses a message to carry to Pharaoh and said, let my people go. So what's the message then that we carry as God's ambassadors to our world that is held captive? It's this. Jesus sets you free. Let's go. You know, God called one person, Moses, to to carry this message. Here's the amazing thing. Through his Holy Spirit, he distributed his authority and his power to every single person who trusts in him. And so now we don't just have one Moses, but but every single person who trusts in Jesus is now a Moses called to set captives free. And so we carry with us the message, hey, Jesus set you free. Come on, let's go. So Moses, he was he was handpicked as this ambassador. And this was an unprecedented thing, that God would send an ambassador on his behalf, that he doesn't just show up to Pharaoh and tells him what he thinks, but he sends somebody, he chooses to use broken people to represent him. And so he uses Moses and he sends him, and and he calls us to be ambassadors in the very same way. So my so what's this morning, number one, are this, who are you? You might be prone to think and ask the very same question, who am I? I, and the answer to that question is this, without God, you are nothing. Without God, you are nothing. And you might think, okay, hey, that's a little harsh, maybe, but it's true. You know what? It's the realization of the Israelites when they're stuck in the middle of slavery, and they have no way out, and they have nothing to get them, and they're at the end of their rope. They start crying out to God, and they say, God, without you, we are nothing. We need you to save us. It's David's realization when he's there and he's getting ready to walk up to Goliath and he doesn't have a sword or a shield, he has a couple of stones. And he throws them at Goliath's head and God knocks Goliath down. It's the realization of every single hero that, we hero that we see in Scripture because they're not the real heroes of the story. The real hero of the story is God. They just simply know that God is the one who goes with them. We have their stories because of who he was and because of the reality that he went with them. And so, so Moses is even going to recognize it in this. So, so as you consider what it is that God is calling you to do, and we'll clarify that calling piece in, in just a minute, but as you consider that, I'd encourage you, don't start with self. Start with God. The right question is not who am I, but who is God? Number two, God goes with you. So this is, the, this is the weirdest argument in the whole world. Moses asks a question, who am I? And God says, no, I'll go with you. Like, that, like this, th- that interaction just seems so weird and awkward to us, but God is just making it clear. It's as if the question doesn't even matter. You know what? You can be used because God's presence with you makes you usable. This is not about you. This is about God showing who he is through you. So, so the reality is, is that God accomplishes his purposes through weak people who simply trust him. That's the way that, that he works. In fact, the weaker you are, the more likely it is that he's going to be able to use you, and the, the more his glory is revealed through you. So God goes with you. Number three, now go deliver. So you know what? There, there are people you walk by every day, and, and the, whether uh, you're at work or whether you're walking around your neighborhood, the people you're interacting with at the store, when you go to uh, the restaurants, and all of these people, these people, we all suffer from a problem, and that problem is, by nature, we are captive to sin. We are captive to the brokenness of of this world, and we look around us, and we long to know that there is some level of connection, some level of hope that could exist for us. That there's a God who actually loves us. But and, and but then sometimes, like we we even ignore the reality that that what we're missing is connection. We find ways to distract ourselves and invest ourselves into technology and forget the deeper realities of life. But but the thing is, is that in each human soul there is a person who's captive to sin, who's longing to know. If they can be connected to God. Some people are more aware of it than others. The various struggles of our lives make it evident to us that this Egypt that we live in is a broken place. That this world that we live in is a broken place. That that as we look at the way politics is working right now we look at the way that people are at each other's throats we look at the way that people can't interact cordially with each other online or even in person we look at the ways that that brokenness just seems to be seeping its way through this whole american culture which we thought to be very prim and proper and we have built up and we want everybody to come and like live the american dream because this is the good life but we see that even the good life is starting to fall apart at the seams you have a message for these people about a god who loves them and wants to set them free. So Christian, this is your calling. Share this message and make disciples. This is the the singular calling. Yes, we might all have various gifts and we might use our gifts to support this calling, but at the end of the day, this is the calling of every single Christian. So you might ask the question, hey, like what's my life calling? What's the thing that I'm supposed to do? And you might be given particular gifts to work in certain spheres of industry and I totally see all of that, but in the midst of all of it, the singular calling of every single Christian is to share this message of hope with our world. So you mean to tell me that I'm supposed to make disciples. Like me. A person here just like sitting here. You know, and I I, like had the same interaction. Like when somebody... Presented this idea to me. I was like you mean to tell me i'm responsible for that you mean to tell me like the, the the whole church Or like the the organization of the church isn't responsible for that that we should just like invite people to church And that like that's how they're going to get saved or you, you mean to tell me that like the pastor up front Like he's just not the one responsible and I could just like, you know Have him have coffee with all my friends so that they get saved and so i'll i'll, I'll let him do that Like no, you mean to tell me that it's me That i'm supposed to take ownership of it Yes, that's exactly right. You know what? Because you might think, okay, but, but I don't have all the things. I don't, I, I, I don't have the skills. I've not met, uh, met the right people. I don't say the right things. But at the end of the day, it's not about you. The power to do this task does not come from you. It comes from the one who goes with you. So, you know what? When we walk into these spheres, when we meet our neighbors, when we um, try to build relationships with them, I feel like we expect very little things because our expectations are based on us. But what if we actually lived by faith? You know, when Jesus says, you know, faith the size of a mustard seed can move mountains, he's not saying you can move mountains. In fact, the point is, you look at a mountain and you go, that's pretty impossible for me to do. The point is, you trust the one who goes with you to do the work. You trust the one who goes with you to move the mountains. You trust the one with you to, to work through you to do the thing that he's called you to do. So the point is, because of who he is, God can use you. Number four number four. So if God is the one that we are relying upon, one of the ways that we can show our reliance upon him is to pray, to pray about these things. And so I'm calling all of us to prayer. Again, you have these in your bulletin, our our daily prayer requests as we go throughout the week. So you can use those, but you can also go online and see these, abcbartlett.org info. These are to guide our prayer that, that we might see God more for who he is, and that seeing him for who he is, that we would actually understand who it is that walks with us into these various, various situations that he calls us to. And so as, as we think about that, I want to encourage you, we have a timeline in front of us. We're heading towards Easter. And Easter is a great time to let people know about the hope that is available to us in Jesus. So we have like six weeks until Easter. We're six weeks out, five weeks out, I don't know, something like that. But we have a period of time. This is what I want to encourage you to do. You could invite five people. You could invite ten people to Easter. I don't—that's I, I, great. Invite five or ten people. But what I really want all of us to do is to think about one person, to invest in— in one person, to invest relationally in one person, to, to love them like Jesus would love them, to, to reach out to them, to, uh, to, to maybe fix a meal for them, or invite them over for dinner, to, to just get to know them well, to ask them questions about the, who they are and their interests, and then as you get to know them, to find opportunities to reveal Jesus's love to them through your actions and through your words. So I want you to be praying for one person. One person in your life that God might draw to himself. I want your heart to be so broken for this one person. And I want your heart to be so hopeful for what they can see and what they can meet when they meet Jesus. I want you to start focusing on one person. And maybe it needs to start with, Lord, my heart for this one person is not where it needs to be. So God, I need you to change my heart towards this person. But I want you to start praying for them. I want you to start working with them. I want you to start reaching out to them, and, and maybe, maybe over the course of the next five weeks, you will have done something to where they, they could come to an Easter service. Maybe you need to, and you will need to continue your investment on even beyond that. And you might say, you know what, I can't connect with people. I don't know how to do it. it maybe a little awkward, I'm just a little worried about that. You know what, it's not about you. Okay, so, uh, so let's go back to my story, my story that I promised we would get back to. Um, so I'm supposed to go to seminary. I've got all these people around me telling me that I am supposed to go to seminary. And uh, I'm like, but you don't understand because of who I am, because of the resources that I have, it's just not going to happen. Like, it's not going to happen. You may tell me all that you want, that this is the thing that I should do, but it's not what's going to happen. And so then I had a mentor who came along, and he said the same sort of thing to me. He said, you know what? You should really think about going to seminary. And, you know, I don't think that, like, to be a pastor, you have to go to seminary. Obviously, like, you know, I love Pastor Don. He he went and did some Bible training at Moody, and that was awesome. Like, I, I don't think that at all. But, but there were various people in my life who were saying, yeah, you should really consider this. And so this mentor comes along, and he says, hey, hey, I, uh, I really think you should do this. And I said, I can't do it. Like, I, look at what I have. Look at who I am. You know, I, it's not possible. And he says, no, you couldn't do it. And I said, no, no, you don't get it. Don't you understand what I have? Don't you understand? Like, I can't. It would be unwise for me to take on that amount of debt, especially going in and taking a pastor's salary. Like so, all of these realities—you don't understand what it is that I'm walking into. And he—he kind of, no, you don't get it. You know that, that uh, mentor of mine. He said, uh, "I'm going to cover a significant portion." of your seminary bill. In fact, he covered up to half of it. And the crazy thing is that he walked alongside of Andrea and I, even as we were like trying to figure out um, what it looks like to be financially sustainable through seminary and all of that stuff. And he was, he was just walking with us, giving us resources, making sure that we were taken care of. And uh, you know what? His partnership and support alongside of me through that season, alongside of my family through that season, it made a lot of things that seemed really impossible very possible. So you know what? It wasn't because of me. It wasn't because of what I had. In fact, what I had proved the point that I could not do this thing. I didn't have the resources, but because he got behind me, but because he partnered with me, the things that I lacked didn't matter. And it's the very same with us and God. We're walking into situations. We're called to walk into situations where the things we're going to lack a lot. I got to be honest with you all, like calling to, like being called to lead a church and be a pastor and all of the things that that has, like I I lack a lot. And I believe that the only way that I can actually do this job is if God shows up and gives me the power to do it. And I want to encourage all of you as you step into situations with relationships with people, be convinced you can't do it, but God can. And he's the one who goes with you. Would you pray with me, please? Father, this morning as we just come to worship you, as come to see who you are, we ask that you would instruct our hearts more and more about your heart. Your heart to reveal your character in powerful ways. Your heart to, to show people who are hopeless and people who are desperate just how good you are. Lord, would you show your heart to seek and save the lost? Lord, and as you show us your heart in this way, would you draw our hearts into stepping into this calling? Lord, may we not be satisfied with the easy things that we know we can do. But Lord, may we be prone to go after the things that we're not sure we can do. So that we actually give you an opportunity at some points to see you show up Lord, so so I encourage you just challenge us um, in our faith Lord, may we um, not become too reliant on ourselves, but Become more and more reliant on you and in who you are Lord, we trust you to, to work in our hearts this way. We trust you to go with us what I pray for each person in this room as, as they think about who that one person is, that you would, um, that you would be teaching us the words that you would have us say, that you would be drawing those people to you. We pray all of this in Jesus' name, Amen.